This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. In the wake of another mass shooting in the United States, this time in Uvalde, Texas. A sombre Memorial Day across our nation today for families in Uvalde. Today, they're getting ready for the first funerals for the 19 students and two teachers killed. Which followed the killing of 10 people in New York just 10 days earlier. As we come on the air, we're learning more about the shooter's additional plans. Officials say they are investigating this as a federal hate crime, calling it the act, quote, pure evil. A debate about gun control has once again kicked off. Every time these tragedies occur, Australia's gun laws are held up as a universal example of firearm legislation that actually works. There was a complete paradigm shift in Australia, a country where so many didn't think it was possible. The statistics are repeated. 13 gun massacres in the 18 years up to 1996. That's when Australia reformed its gun laws following the massacre of 35 people at Port Arthur and none since. It was a reminder, as so many aspects of this tragedy were, of what a magnitude the disaster and the massacre was. Gun deaths halved in the following 20 years. It was absolutely horrific and it left the country reeling. But the truth is, not all aspects of the landmark National Firearm Agreement have been fully implemented. And a question remains, are we as immune to the influence of the gun lobby as most of us believe. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisher about the need for vigilance on Australia's gun laws. It's Friday, the 3rd of June. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Hey. So, Lenore... What makes Australia's gun laws so different? I think they're a shining example of of what can be done with political will. They were introduced after the horrific Port Arthur massacre in 1996. At least 25 people killed in Australia's worst massacre. When a gunman shot 35 people. Most of the victims are reported to be tourists visiting the historic penal colony at Port Arthur. Australia hasn't really had a mass shooting since because the then Prime Minister, John Howard, really showed, I thought, quite incredible courage and political leadership. Prime Minister John Howard responded immediately, bringing forward a meeting of state and federal police ministers to Friday week. And in the wake of that horrific massacre, sign a a national agreement between the federal government and all of the states which banned all semi-automatic rifles and semi-automatic and pump-action shotguns, so the kind of rapid-fire guns that are so often used in massacres. There is no legitimate interest served, in my view, by the free availability in this country uh, of weapons of this kind. To require a whole system of licensing and registration of firearms and also to institute a gun amnesty so that people brought out all the guns they had in their cupboards and wherever else before this new system came into place. And by some estimates, a million guns were collected and destroyed as a result of that. And, you know, it was a real achievement by the conservative side of politics. There was resistance and unease and it was a hard 
battle for my National Party friends like Tim Fisher. And- it really did change the way that gun law developed in Australia so that it really kind of reconfirmed, if you like, solidified the fact that in Australia, owning a gun is a privilege that a citizen has to earn. Gun owners have to be registered. They have to be licensed. They have to show the government why they need to have a gun. We don't see gun ownership as an inherent right like in the United States. And those laws really sort of set that in stone at that point. But there is a gun lobby in Australia as well. They are quite powerful. They are quite well financed. And there are constant efforts to erode the laws to an extent and also to change that mindset about whether gun ownership is a privilege or a right. And I do think we have to be mindful of that. We have to be vigilant. The Norm mentioned earlier that there haven't been any mass shootings since the 1996 firearm agreement. But, Mike, are there other tangible data that show that these gun laws have worked? So obviously you can't always ascribe statistics over a long period of time to any one particular event. But it's certainly true, for example, that some of the key indicators dropped in the years after Port Arthur. So the rate of total gun homicides, total gun deaths, gun suicides all fell significantly very soon after the restrictions were brought in. So I think with a lot of those statistics, what seems to have happened is there there was that big drop-off in the immediate aftermath of Port Arthur, but in the more or less 20 years since then, they have tended to plateau. There have been some incidents in the recent years that have made us focus our attention once again on the gun laws. What are some of those incidents and what have we learnt from them? Well, I guess in New South Wales most recently, there was the really horrendous case of the Edwards family where the father killed his two children and then himself. The coroner has found the tragic deaths of two Sydney children shot by their own father could have been prevented. He had a long history of domestic violence with numerous partners. Despite having a history of domestic violence, John Edwards was able to gain a gun licence before murdering son Jack and daughter Jennifer He had managed to get a gun, even though he'd he'd been rejected by one gun club. So being a member of a gun club is one is the most common. Well, is one very common way that you can uh, legitimately get to own a gun in New South Wales. He'd been rejected by one gun club, but was accepted by another. The objections from the first one and his domestic violence record were somehow missed by the New South, you know, the registration authorities. It's an example of how. Even though we sort of feel there aren't that many guns around in Australia, but in fact there are many more guns now than there were in uh, 1996, you know, that's one of the problems with thinking about our gold standard gun laws is that there are are still these loopholes and, and ways around them that have not been effectively plugged. Lenore, one of the recommendations of that Howard Fisher firearm agreement was the establishment of a national firearms registry. And I noticed that this week the federal police have come out again and said we really need a proper national firearms database. Why has it been so hard to implement? Well, that was one of the parts of the agreement that was actually never properly implemented. The idea is that you've got a national database so you can track the guns, who owns them, where they are, whether they've been stolen. We have state databases, but they're incomplete. They don't always talk to each other. They don't always record information in the same way. And that's why the Federal Police Association said in the article with Chris Norse in Guardian Australia that that's one part of the Uh, agreement that we really need to implement properly to make the agreement work the way it's supposed to. It's really 
one example of the way that these laws are not properly implemented because they're usually state laws and the gun lobby lobbies in each state in different ways. You know, so at the moment in New South Wales, there was recently a review of its firearm registry because after that Edwards case that Mike just discussed, there were changes made because there were such obvious administrative failures that allowed that man to get the gun that he used to kill his children. But the the gun lobby and the Shooters and Fishers Party believe that those changes went too far and they've now claimed great success that the New South Wales government has announced a review of its firearms registry. On the other hand, in Western Australia, the gun control lobby is claiming a win because the Western Australian government is proposing tougher gun laws, including strengthening training requirements and provisions to allow police to revoke gun licences from people who are convicted of serious family violence or who are, you know, bikies or organised crime gangs and that kind of thing. So this kind of subterranean battle is going on in all the states all the time to kind of, it's like a pull, push and pull on these laws. And I think it's not like a headline story in the national debate, but it's happening there all the time. Back on the Shooters Party as well, they've, they've also tried to broaden their image quite significantly and quite successfully as well, adding the fishers and farmers to their name is a sort of obvious symbol of that. But there's a lot of their appeal to people, which is just, you know, trying to capitalise on disaffection with the National Party more generally in in New South Wales in particular, and sort of suggests that, you know, the focus on guns alone, as they initially were, is not really a winning strategy in Australian politics, but a broader rural appeal of which that is one part, one component maybe is. On the gun lobby, there was a case a few years ago where Al Jazeera uncovered One Nation potentially seeking donations from abroad. James Ashby and Steve Dixon want millions of dollars to shake up Australia's firearms laws and turn to America's powerful lobby, the NRA, to bankroll it. Do we know if that's happening? Is the gun lobby connected to the US gun lobby at all? And are political parties receiving big donations from the gun lobby? I know that um, certainly Bob Catter, it's his son-in-law is one of the biggest gun importers into Australia. And I think he has um, received donations from the gun lobby. And yes, there are connections between the gun lobby in Australia and the gun lobby elsewhere. There's certainly attempts to misrepresent what is happening in Australia by the gun lobby in the United States, because obviously it doesn't suit their purposes that our gun laws work so well. Mm -hmm. And in a funny way, part of that national agreement has actually strengthened the gun lobby because it's like an unintended consequence, if you like, because as Mike said, one of the ways that you can legitimately own a gun is if you're a member of a gun club. So lots of people join gun clubs. You have to pay membership to gun clubs. There's a financial incentive to start a gun club. And so organisations like the Sporting Shooters Association of Australia and other clubs and associations that lobby for gun laws are quite well funded. And then they can donate to parties which support their views on guns, like the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, and that gives them political influence. So it's kind of a strange and unintended consequence of the agreement that it's kind of in some ways uh, helping the lobby that wants to change the laws in a way that might be seen as weakening them. Just on the US connection, I think it's interesting that Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, as it's now called, initially grew out of what was initially just called the Shooters Party. They 
oppose the Commonwealth Firearms Registry, but they also stress in their policies that they're not seeking US-style gun laws. So they do talk about why guns for them are part of their more general program of individual freedom and freedom from red tape and government interference and those kind of things that sound like they are in the vein of more US-style libertarian ideas. But they do go out of their way to say that they don't want open slather of gun ownership. So I think we're not in the middle of a kind of US-style culture war on guns where gun ownership is that sort of totemic issue that drives people's voting behaviour and and donating behaviour. There are kind of sort of hints of it, but there's no one who's really trying to make it into that kind of totemic culture war issue. And also some of those gun clubs make what, from their perspective, is a legitimate point that they're law-abiding gun owners who, you know, use guns for voting purposes or as farmers or on the land and, you know, they don't see why they should be criminalised. And I guess it's like their individual viewpoint versus the collective benefit of there just being fewer guns around. And also there's always this debate about what kind of guns do they definitely need. And one of the struggles that's happened over the years is that uh, technological advances kind of find loopholes through the agreement. And, you know, there's certainly the other part of the lobby is the gun importers, because of course we don't manufacture guns in Australia anymore. So, It's often the gun importers that are either trying to find a way around the gun laws or lobbying to change the gun laws so that they can sell a wider range of weapons. Barnaby Joyce in the past has said, you know, the problem is not the legal gun owners. We should shift our attention to illegal guns. All this circles around, you know, the criminality around guns. Law-abiding citizens are not the ones uh, who uh, decide to go out and rob banks. What is the response to that? Oh, look, to an extent, he's right. You know, a lot of crime certainly is committed with illegally owned guns. But I would make the point that the way that you can easily identify an illegal gun is if you have a properly functioning register of the legal ones, that the more legally owned guns you have, if you don't have the sort of strict guidelines and registration and licensing rules that we endeavour to have, the more easily they can sort of slide into the illegal stockpile, if you like. So I don't think it's an either-or proposition. I think you need to have the rules of the National Firearms Agreement and the sort of mindset that gun ownership is a privilege in order to be able to properly identify and properly police and crack down on illegal firearms. I mean, it's correct that illegal firearms are the biggest problem, but the two things are, I think, connected. People get killed by guns in in other ways. Obviously, there are the terrible family, you know, typically murder-suicide cases. There's gun crime in, in relation to gang wars, particularly going on in Sydney at the moment, using illegally imported guns. Obviously, they're not, not registered in any way, whereas um, in, in other sorts of, you know, in suicides and in the family cases, they often are guns that have been obtained legally. We shouldn't minimise the terrible effect of those incidents and just focus on, you know, it's it's fine to say there haven't been any random massacres as there were before 1996, but that shouldn't minimise the effect of people who are victims of gun crime of different kinds in, in, in the years since. So if the laws are generally good, but there is this constant pressure, and particularly at a local state level, Lenore, how do we maintain 
vigilance and how do we report it as a story? Yeah, I just think we have to keep on it. And, you know, sometimes the stories seem a bit arcane, you know, whether this sort of rifle should be imported or that sort of rifle or, you know, whether the there should be a 28-day cooling-off period or what age you should be when you can, you know, legally own a gun. But taken together, all of those little bits add up to the restrictions that have worked. And I think ultimately the benefit to Australia of maintaining that view that gun ownership is a legitimate thing that, that, you know, people can legitimately do, but it's a privilege and it has to be subject to restrictions and laws and rules for the good of the wider community is something that we should hang on to with both hands as hard as we can because when you look at the alternative in other countries, it really isn't something we'd ever want to emulate. Next, toilets and republics. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head, Lenore. What's stuck in your mind? Uh, I was really struck by the interviews with the incoming minister tasked with overseeing Australia's transition to a republic, Matt Thistlethwaite, who um, was just talking about his job and saying, you know, it is really to make sure that the transition to a republic is ready to go in a second term of an Albanese government. So it's not something Labor's moving on straight away, but his job is to inject the republic back into the national conversation. And I say, excellent, bring it Mm. on. I heard him on the radio on Thursday morning saying it was his first involvement in a political group and it was mine too. (laughs) I'm ready for this debate to come back. Uh, Mike, what can you not get out of your head? Uh, So my favourite story this week was about something that happened about 4,500 years ago when a single seed. Oh, big picture, Mike, big picture. (laughs) (laughs) A single seed off Australia's west coast found itself in a good spot (laughs) and you know, grew as they do. And since then, it's grown to become what is now believed to be the biggest plant anywhere on earth, covering about 200 square kilometres. And until now, no one had realised that it was just one single plant. And yeah, I don't know, it just seems like a a fascinating scientific story, but also kind of, I don't know, that plant, I had a lot of respect for that plant, that it's just been steadily growing away, expanding (laughs) carefully without anyone really realising for four and a half thousand years. And yeah, there are lots of of interesting wrinkles and good quotes in that story from Graham Redford and encourage people to go and have a look. I'm just going to read the headline of the story I can't get out of my head and encourage uh, listeners to go and look it up and to see the glorious photos. It's legal logjam. Bid to build Australia's finest public toilet, dubbed Cistern Chapel, runs into trouble. And a headline writer's dream. A headline writer, yeah. The Cistern Chapel is really something you have to see to believe. Uh, Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. If this episode raised any issues for you, in Australia, the Crisis Support Service Lifeline is on 131114 and the National Family Violence Counselling Service is on 1800 737 732. We've listed other services for the UK and US and other countries on the full story page. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe. 
This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannon. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Laura Murphy-Goats will be back with you on Monday and we'll see you then. Thank you.